come with me to chapter two. I know you just read chapter one, but come with me to chapter two of First Kings. And uh, uh, but let's see, don't worry, that reading has given us is quite a lengthy one, and we are going to use lots of it. But I just want to start at the end of David's life. It says here, uh, talk three, David is king, but I want to focus on David's last year. In fact, I want to focus on the last years, the last year, the last acts, the things he did on his deathbed, King David, because they reveal to us the spiritual greatness of the man, and they also reveal to us the kind of character flaws of the man as well. And, and there's uh, there's great riches for us to, to learn from this afternoon. Anyway, just pop into First uh, Kings chapter 2 and beginning at verse 10, it says, So David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the days that David reigned over Israel were 40 years. Seven years reigned he in Hebron, and 30 and three years reigned he in Jerusalem. Then sat Solomon upon the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was established greatly. What a life recorded for us. We're talking 3,000 years ago, and there are spiritual lessons for us today, brothers and sisters, which resonate just as strongly for us today in our time as we walk towards the kingdom, as strongly as they did in the day that David said them, and as David did them back in his time. The man's life was a miracle in some ways because out of all the men in the Old Testament scriptures, maybe even saving our Lord, of course, excuse him for that, uh, that fact, David's life was always under the shadow of somebody trying to kill him. And lots of people who wanted to please King Saul trying to kill him and threats to the monarchy from within his own family. He managed to get to 70 years. That was a remarkable achievement in those times. But David knew it wasn't due to his guile and strength and cleverness. It was all the hand of God working out his greater plan and purpose over his people Israel and showing through the life of David and through the life of his son something to do with the future of a greater king who would sit on that same throne as king over Israel and as king over all peoples forever. So, if you go into uh, chapter one, then at the beginning of the chapter that Steve read for us, we find David not in good physical shape. Verse one tells us he's old and stricken in years and they cover him with clothes, but he got no heat. This word clothes here isn't uh, outdoor clothes, regular clothes. This is bed clothes. They, they layer him up with blankets. He cannot get warm. He's old and well stricken in years. So what do we do? How do we help King David? Well, they, as verse two tells us, uh, the servants think, okay, let there be sword for my Lord, a young, uh, the king, a young virgin. Let us stand before the king and let her cherish him and let her lie in his bosom that my Lord, the king may get heat. And without going over the, re the reading again, they bring out, uh, they bring Abishag along and uh, she tries to give the king warmth. So David, his body is failing, his mind is going possibly, he is on his deathbed, it would seem. We don't really have much in this record here of him getting up again. I think he's in this deathbed. I think he stays in it until he's died in, in chapter two. And his health would not have been strengthened by the events of the previous uh, chapters where there's been the sin of the people. Um, if we uh, consider the, the, the situation regarding the census and the plague uh, and what that was about, um, we, uh, we, we bear in mind that the effect of that plague and of that census was not just against the people, it was against well, all of Israel and included 
David's house also. So come into Second Samuel now, in chapter 24. So we're familiar with the, the record in Samuel and in Chronicles, and the first verse of 2 Samuel 24 says, The anger, and again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against, who? Against Israel. And he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the captain of the host, which was with him, Go now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, and number ye the people, I may know the number of the people. And then Joab says something rather interesting. He's the head of the army speaking here. Verse 3, Joab said unto the king, Now the Lord thy God add unto the people how many soever they be, an hundredfold, and that the eyes of my lord the king may see it. But why doth the king, my, my lord the king, delight with this thing? Notwithstanding, the king's word prevailed against Joab, and against the captains of the host, and Joab and the captains of the host went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. So there's this nationwide census to be done. How many men are in the land? What is the census of the people? What's the number of the people? That's what you do in preparation for war. You count how many men you have. Joab is resistant to this, though. David, is this a good idea, is basically what he's saying. Joab is somewhat bold, actually, in voicing against the king's command. But the plan and purpose of God is revealed in that first verse. It's not against David that the Lord God has provoked and arranged the situation where David chooses to census the people. It's against Israel. And we recognize in verse 10 also, after the number in verse 9 is given, there's 800,000 valiant men of Israel, there's 500,000 men of Judah. David realizes he has sinned. Really? Just for numbering the people? Has he? Really? We'll find out why. Verse 10. And David's heart smote him after that he had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done. And now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. For when David was up in the morning, the word of the Lord came unto the prophet Gads, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. Gad said to David and told him, and said to him, Shall seven years of famine come unto thee in thy land? Or wilt thou flee three months before thine enemies? Or they pursue thee? Or that there be three days pestilence in the land? Now advise. And what shall answer, and what answer shall I return to him that sent me? Verse 14, David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let us fall now into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, and let me not fall into the hand of man. So verse 15 tells us there's this pestilence upon Israel from the morning to the time appointed, and there died of the people from Dan even to Beersheba 70,000 men. So David acknowledges his sin, but David, as the shepherd king of the people, wants God, and elsewhere in the record, that says to God, put that sin upon me. Verse 17, David spake unto the Lord when he saw the angel that smote the people and said, Lo, I have sinned, I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, be against me and against my father's house. 
I'll take it on personally, says David. They're sheep. I'm the shepherd. I should have led them the right way, and I have not done so. I have sinned. Let the blame fall on me, says David. This is David's character. This is why he's described as a man after God's own heart. Because David understands the necessity for personal sacrifice. David is willing to take on the sin of all Israel onto himself. That's the character of the man. Um, numbering, uh, numbering the people is not... At first appearances, though, so great a sin. We're going to go back into Exodus now. Exodus 30. We are going to look at Exodus chapter, chapter 30, uh, because Exodus chapter 30 here is um, very telling. Um, Exodus chapter 30, verse 11 says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel, after their number, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord when thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them when thou numberest them. So Moses here is commanded by God to number the people. Numbering the people in itself isn't a bad thing. So notice though, though, when someone is to be numbered, they have to pay, verse 13, half a shekel. This they shall give. Everyone that passeth among them that are numbered, Half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 gearers. And half and half shekel shall be the offering of the Lord. Everyone that passeth among them that are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering unto the Lord. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. And they shall give an offering unto the Lord to make an atonement for your souls. So this censoring... Not the numbering of the people involved a tax, involved paying some money, half a shekel. Rich or poor, if you're a Jew, you pay the same amount. And the reason for it is verse 16. And thou shalt take the atonement money of the children of Israel, and shalt appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of the congregation, that it may be for a memorial unto the children of Israel before the Lord to make an atonement for your souls. David knew about this. David knew about the numbering of the people and what Moses did here. David knew it was what was, had to be done every now and then. David knew that it would raise revenue and the money would go to the, uh, the financing of the worship of God. It's perfectly acceptable here in Exodus 30. So why is it a sin when David numbers the people? Where's the sin there? Well, David's heart was set on right things in many ways because he wanted to build something, didn't he? First Chronicles chapter 28. And let's see why this played out the way it did. First Chronicles, chapter 28. Now this is towards the end of David's life as well, and this is uh, the, uh, the, the national gathering that David organizes uh, to, to, to show how what he planned to do was gonna be passed over to Solomon. Um, verse 1 of First uh, Chronicles, chapter 28. David assembled all the princes of Israel, the princes of the tribes and the captains of the count, uh, companies that ministered to the king by course, and the captains over the thousands, the captains over the hundreds, and the stewards over all the substance and possession of the king, and of his sons, with the officers and with the mighty men, and with all the valiant men, unto Jerusalem. Then David the king stood up upon his feet and said, Hear me, my brethren and my people. As for me, I had in mine heart to build an house of rest 
for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God and had made ready for the building. I think that was the reason behind the census, you know, and for the paying of the shekel. David's plan for the building of the temple was not just for the building of the temple. Oh, wonderful King David, wasn't he a great king? He built this great temple. No, no. He wanted every sheep in the flock to be involved in this. He wanted everybody in Israel to contribute to the building of this temple, this house for the ark, for the glorification of God Almighty. He wanted everybody in Israel to be spiritually involved in the construction of this work, to be engaged and connected to this temple that was to be built, to be more spiritual, to willingly give freely their half shekel. And he was going to use that money to build his temple. But it wasn't what God wanted. Verse 3, God said unto me, Thou shalt not build an house for my name, because thou hast been a man of war and hast shed blood. Howbeit, the Lord God of Israel chose me before all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. For he hath chosen Judah to be the ruler, and of the house of Judah, the house of my father, and among the sons of my father. He liked me to make me king over all Israel, and of my sons. For the Lord hath given me many sons. He hath chosen Solomon, my son, to sit upon the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. He said unto me, Solomon, thy son, he shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. Moreover, I will establish his kingdom forever. If he be constant to do my commandments and my judgments as at this day. It wasn't God's plan. So David was wrong to go against God's plan in the same way that Joab was wrong to voice opposition against the king. David had to learn that though his intentions were honorable, God was teaching him a lesson. He had to accept God's word in its entirety. And so the plan was to be executed by his son Solomon. God was teaching David a lesson about how the kingdom would be established and secured under Solomon, but the house of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, would have a king one day who would sit and reign over it forever. There was something to do with what God was doing here by teaching David, no David, you're not building it, Somebody greater is coming along who will sit on that throne. Something that's being done now in your present is pointing to something in the future. And you need to understand this, David. You're not building my temple. Your son will. But on that throne, a king will sit forever. And it took David a long time, I think, to understand that and process that and understand it. And he found it a great disappointment to him personally in many ways that his own vision wasn't to be the one that uh, was constructed and it was to be handed over to his son but god was teaching him a lesson god was putting him into a situation whereby he would learn this lesson in exactly the same way that god moved david into a situation where he felt he had to go number the people he found it a tough lesson to swallow but but carrying on reading in first chronicles 28 he takes that on the chin. He understands it. He understands it at this point. And he says, Now therefore, verse 8 of 1 Chronicles 28, Now therefore, in the sight of all Israel, the congregation of the Lord, 
and in the audience of our God. Keep and seek for all the commandments of the Lord your God, that ye may possess this good land and leave it for an inheritance for your children after you forever. If there's one thing we remember this afternoon, brothers and sisters, from considering these final years of David, this is it. This is the exhortation. It's 3,000 years old. It's as solid today as it was the day it was uttered by King David. In our time, brothers and sisters, we must keep and seek for all the commandments of the Lord. That's the exhortation for us. We are to read his word. We are to study his word. We are to pray. We are to seek and keep, protect, preserve, defend, not water down, not accommodate the ideas of the world in which we live and have them creep into our ecclesias. Get them out. Keep and seek all the commandments of the Lord. And the blessings that by grace through the Lord Jesus come from that can be forever. So let's go back into our, our chapter again, 1 Kings chapter 1, wasn't it? 1 Kings chapter 1. So there's been this, I've struggled to sort of slot together the precise chronology of all the events in here because Solomon was crowned king twice. We've just read in chapter 28 there in First Chronicles of the handing over, we haven't read the whole chapter, I know, but the handing over of the, uh, of the plans that David had to his son and uh, the, the sort of national uh, offerings that were given at that time and the ceremonial aspect to it uh, that David performed uh, and he exhorts the people at this point. But while he's on his deathbed in um, 1 Kings chapter 1, he has another problem to deal with. Um, we have Adonijah, don't we? So in verse 5 of uh, 1 Kings chapter 1, David's ill. David's unwell. His time is short. He's probably going to die soon. Can't get warm. Days are numbered. One of his sons goes, aha. Some of the Psalms that David wrote, we'll look at Psalm 30 in a bit, but David talks about these people and go, aha. When David's at a weak point, his enemies think, right, now's our chance. Verse 5 of 1 Kings 1, Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And then goes and copies what Absalom did. And he prepared him chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And his father had not displeased him at any time in saying, why hast thou done so? And he also was a very goodly man, and his mother bare him after Absalom. So there he is, young Adonijah, this uh, good-looking man. Uh, he's never been crossed by his father, some commentator said. Right? How long did, did David know about this? And if so, why did it carry on? Throughout his entire life, did Adonijah never get crossed and told no by King David? Why would Adonijah feel he could do this and get away with this? David had a weakness with his sons sometimes, and they were rebellious. Adonijah, verse 7, he confers with Joab, the son of Zeruiah. Joab's not shy of coming forward and speaking against the plans that the king has. And with Abiathar the priest, 
And they, following Adonijah, helped him. But Adonijah is very careful who he picks to back him up in his quest to become king. Look at who he doesn't pick. Verse 8. Zadok the priest, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan the prophet, and Shimei and Rei, and the mighty men which belonged to David were not with Adonijah. Adonijah slew sheep and oxen, fat cattle by the stone of Zaholeth, which is by Enrobel, and called all his brethren, his king's sons, and all the, son, all the men of Judah, the king's prophets. But Nathan, the prophet, and Benaiah, and the mighty men, and Solomon, his brother, he called not. So God's succession plan was being challenged here by Adonijah. So Nathan hears about this and Bathsheba hears about this. So we have to give David some slack, I think, because he's very aged and stricken with old age and his body is failing and he can't get heat and uh, whatever is being done isn't working. But he has to do this final act. He has to do this final work to secure the monarchy, to secure the line of succession, which has been so often under threat from without and from within. So Nathan and Bathsheba then get to work. Verse 11, wherefore Nathan spake unto Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Hast thou not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, doth reign, and David our Lord knoweth it not? Now therefore come, let me, I pray thee, give thee counsel, that thou mayest save thine own life and the life of thy son Solomon. If Adonijah becomes king, first thing he's going to do is make sure there's no threats to his kingdom, his kingship. David's son Solomon and Bathsheba, as far as Nathan's concerned, their lives are possibly at risk here. We need to get David to do things. Verse 13, go and get thee in unto King David and say unto him, didst thou not, my lord, O king, swear unto thine handmaid, saying, assuredly, Solomon, my son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne, and then, doth, why then doth Adonijah reign? Behold, while thou yet talkest with there with the king, I also will come in after thee and confirm thy words. So Bathsheba goes into the king's chamber in verse 15 and says these words in verse 17. My Lord, thou swearest by the Lord thy God unto thine handmaid, saying, Assuredly, Solomon, thy son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne. And behold, Adonijah reigneth. And now, my Lord, the king, thou knowest it not. And then while she's speaking, she, she ends the words by saying in verse 21, you know, Solomon and myself will be offenders if he becomes king. And while she's talking, in comes Nathan, verse 23. They told the king, saying, Behold, Nathan the prophet, when he was uh, come in before the king, he bowed himself before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, My lord, O king, hast thou said Adonijah shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne? For he is gone down this day. And hath slain oxen and fat cattle and sheep in abundance, and hath called all the king's sons and the captains of the host, and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they eat and drink before him, and say, God save King Adonijah. But me, even me, thy servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and thy servant Solomon, hath he not called? Is this thing done in my lord by my lord the king? And thou hast not showed it unto thy servant, who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? They're putting David into a situation where he realizes he's got to do something. They're boxing him into a, into a corner, as it were. And so he's got to choose 
the way he's going to go forward and get out of it. In the same way that Almighty God put him in a situation where he chose to go and number the people to teach Israel a lesson. David is being taught a lesson here, I think. Verse 28, then King David answered and said, call me Bathsheba. And she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king sware and said, as the Lord liveth, that hath redeemed my soul out of all distress, even as I swear unto thee by the Lord God of Israel, saying, assuredly, Solomon thy son shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne in my stead. Even so will I certainly do this day. And Bathsheba bowed with her face to the earth and did reverence to the king and said, Lord, uh, let my Lord King David live forever. Then David gets to work, verse 32, call me Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. We're going to look at Benaiah in a bit. We've heard this bit before, Brother Paul, but uh, Sister Deb, you can just go to sleep for a bit. Um, we'll talk, talk about what Benaiah did in, in a moment, but he calls this priest, this prophet and this mighty man. Verse 33, take with you the servants of your Lord and, and cause Solomon, my son, to ride upon mine own mule and bring him down to Gihon and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him there, king over Israel, and blow ye with the trumpet and say, God save King Solomon. So he was going to deal with this threat from Adonijah by anointing and appointing Solomon to be king over Israel. Israel, and it was going to be done with this show of uh, force, be it with a priest and a prophet and one of the mighty men from Israel. Verse 38, so Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and caused Solomon to ride upon King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. Verse 39, they said at the end of that verse, God save King Solomon. Come with me to Psalm 30, because it's suggested that David wrote this psalm at this time. Possibly Psalm 31 as well. And as we read through these words in Psalm 30 and 31, we can pick up echoes of what's going on in these final years or final year of David's life. Psalm 30. I will extol thee, O Lord, for thou hast lifted me up. And hast not made my foes to rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried unto thee, and thou hast healed me. O Lord, thou hast brought up my soul from the, from the grave, and hast kept me alive, that I should not go down to the pit. Verse 5. For his anger endureth but a moment. In his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Verse 8. I cried to the Lord. I, I cried to thee, O Lord. And unto the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Shall the dust praise thee? Shall it declare thy truth? Hear, O Lord, and have mercy upon me, Lord, for be thou my helper. Verse 12. To the end that my glory may sing praise to thee and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks unto thee forever. So David understands that he will, by God's grace, praise Almighty God forever in the future. He has seen in his own life, time and time again, him walking into a situation where the odds were stacked so much against him. Anybody looking from the outside would go, he's dead. He's not going to get out of that one. And time and time again, he gets out of that situation because God was with him. God protected him. 
But this was done with characters to assist him and to help him. Now, we've, I, I, I love this, uh, this mention of um, Benaiah in uh, uh, 1 Kings uh, chapter 1. Uh, very briefly, very briefly, because I know we're talking about David, but I'm, I'm going to cheat a bit. I'm going to talk a little bit about Benaiah, because when you were in Israel in those days and you saw Benaiah going around town, you watch out. Benaiah was somebody who was loyal and protected King David from many threats. He was one of the mighty, mighty men. And he was loyal to King uh, uh, David, and after King David fell on sleep, uh, his son Solomon got Benaiah to do the jobs that his father got to do jobs as well. So um, when people needed to be eliminated, you send Benaiah to do the job. So we have mention here of Benaiah in uh, verse 36, don't we, of First Kings 1. So it's Benaiah who's appointed out of all the mighty men. There were, there were bodyguards around King David. There were a group of these super tough warriors who were referred to in hushed tones in, in Jewish life back in these days. There were the three and there were the 30. So David had these men around him, these super tough warrior, valiant men, the mightiest of the men in the, in the armed forces. They were kind of like David's sort of special secret service, sort of you know, close bodyguard. So Benaiah, we have, we're not going to go into all the other verses, but Benaiah... Get this, Benaiah jumps into a pit and kills a lion on a, on a snowy day. What? If I'm walking along and I see a pit in the ground and I see a lion there, guess where I'm going? That way. Not Benaiah. Benaiah had something different about him. He was a super tough, super warrior kind of character. He thinks, right, I'm, above, I'm high ground, he's low ground, I'll, I'll, get him in the, I'll get him now while he's there. He gets in the pit with the lion and kills the lion. Who does that? Not many. We're also told he kills two lion-like men from Moab. So the biggest thing that the army of Moab had to come against Israel with, these two great big men, Benaiah deals with both of them, probably one after the other, it's, or at the same time, we don't know. But another mighty warrior from Egypt comes out to, Benaiah deals with him as well. He takes his spear off him, which is like a weaver's beam, kills him with it. Benaiah's a tough guy. And he's, and he, so, so David, when he gets Benaiah, plus... Zadok and Nathan, plus the Cherethites and the Pelethites, it's, it's a massive show of force to the people to show that actually it's Solomon. Not Adonijah, it's Solomon who's going to be king. And the message gets across to the people. Brothers and sisters, there is so much that we can take from these final years to do with King David. This man described as being the man after God's own heart had lessons to learn in his last days. A great man, a great king, a man with his flaws. It's noted clearly about his sin with Bathsheba. But from that came Solomon. And through that line and through God's plan and purpose, it leads, of course, to the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, as we bring our thoughts to a conclusion, we must consider what our response must be. What our response must be to having considered the life of David. What have we got to do in our time? We've got to act like a shepherd, haven't we? We've got to shepherd our own family. We've got to shepherd our own ecclesia. If our influence is good, it'll spread out across the brotherhood. It'll influence others to do that which is right and pleasing before Almighty God. 
which is what Jehoiada, Benaiah's father, did, which is what David did, which is what Nathan did, which is what Zadok did, which is what Solomon did, which is what the Lord Jesus did. That's the line we should be following. That's what we should be doing. Let us then, brothers and sisters, consider in, and place into our hearts and minds, let us seek the Lord. Let us know all his commandments and by his grace, worship and sing his praise forever.